and an issue for all women. Happy International Women's Day. To celebrate the social, economic, cultural and political achievements of women, we're running a series of interviews with some kick-ass broads. Aisha Hazarika talks to us about politics, about comedy and how the two can go hand in hand. Laura Bates chats about her new book, Misogynation, and offers some truly startling facts and figures about everyday sexism. Historian and Newnham Fellow Dr Jill Sutherland explains the important role Millicent Fawcett played in the suffrage movement. And finally, England rugby captain Sarah Hunter talks sport in general and rugby in particular. We're releasing all four of these interviews on and around International Women's Day. So after you've finished whichever one you're listening to right now, do have a shufty for the other delicious slices of feminist goodness. Here's Dr Jill Sutherland, historian and Newnham College Fellow, explaining why Millicent Fawcett was such a big suffrage deal and very different to the Pankhurst. Just a heads up, we recorded this in a room at Newnham that turned out to be a tad echoey. We're here at the lovely Newnham College. It really is beautiful. It is. Well, that's Mickey. Hello. Well, that's we. <laughs> With Dr Jill Sutherland, who is a historian and fellow here. Thanks for joining us, Jill. Pleasure to be here. We're here to talk about Millicent Fawcett. It is 100 years since, important word again, some women got some, the votes. Some was right on, And yes. she couldn't have been more key in that battle, could she? No, I think I think not. I mean, if, if, if you're picking your generals, Millicent is uh, the one to pick rather than, frankly, Emily, but my heart is on in that respect. Could you tell us a little bit about Millicent Fawcett? Because... Obviously, there's the Fawcett Society, and she is a name that is bandied around, but I've got to admit, I did not know much about her life. Well, no, indeed, and in some ways, that's the way she would have wanted it. She was born in 1847. She's an East Anglian girl, um, one of 11 children. Her father was a, um, a corn chandler and brewer, worked some of the time in London but um, then they moved back to East Anglia and based at Snape and the, the, the Maltings extraordinary family there are 11 children three of the women are key pioneers Millicent herself her sister who is Elizabeth Garrett Anderson the um, first woman uh, to become a fully-fledged doctor in the UK, mm-hmm. and their sister Agnes, who, with cousin Rhoda, also a Garrett, founded one of the earliest women's interior decorating firms. It was quite a progressive family all in. Their father encouraged them to read and to learn. Right? Oh, and he would go into battle on their <laughs> behalf um, for, the, for the, the women as well as the men, and um, that's unusual. Millicent married at the age of 19. Um, She married Henry Fawcett, a radical liberal politician who'd been prematurely blinded uh, in a shooting accident. Besides being an MP, he was also Professor of Political Economy in Cambridge. So uh, for the... uh, um, all of their married life, really, they divided their time between London and Cambridge, so that's from 1867 until Henry's premature death in 1884, six months in London, six months in Cambridge. Um, And the city has uh, acknowledged this by putting a second blue plaque on the house they owned. There there was already one to Henry, but now there is going to be one for Millicent as well. Oh, that's good. uh, Which we're very pleased about. How did she get involved in the 
suffragist movement because it was very much she was a suffragist not she a was a suffragist and um, by the Edwardian period many of the suffragists called themselves constitutionalists because that they thought captured their position they uh, were committed to working within the existing framework she thought looking back she'd always been in favour but it crystallised when in 1866 she was amongst those women collecting signatures for the petition that John Stuart Mill presented to the House of Commons uh, and he, an MP at the time, moved an amendment which got lost to the 1867 uh, Reform Act which would have allowed some women to vote and so she campaigned thereafter but she moves to national prominence really only from 1886, um, Henry, as I said, died prematurely uh, in uh, 1884, leaving Millicent a widow at the age of 37 with their one child, their daughter, Philippa. And it took her two years to cope and reorganise and rethink. But from 1886 on, based uh, entirely in London um, she spoke and wrote uh, on behalf of, of um, women securing the vote and securing the parliamentary vote because there were already some circumstances in which women, some women could vote in local government elections oh, I didn't know that no, oh yes um, the first key breakthrough is really yeah, they vote in school board elections from 1870. So the movement was starting, there was some oh, sort of progress. yes, I mean, there was huge um, movement at the local government level. Uh, there were women involved in running schools, in running the poor law and the poor law medical services. Women um, uh, voted and sat on parish councils and on county councils. County Council legislation is 1888, Parish Council's legislation is 1894. But somehow, the notion that they could make the move from that to the parliamentary vote stuck. So it's almost like they had a say in the sort of care of the community. Oh, yes. Vote, but when it came to actually making decisions about the country, don't worry your pretty little heads about it. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, and what's interesting is the way in which the kinds of things that happen in local government in terms of the development of social care uh, and educational activity become part of the national agenda. And that, of course, is an argument that the women powerfully use. But rationality can only get you so far. Uh, you know, <laughs> rationality and prejudice don't march to the same tunes. Could you, Jill, just... Obviously, there's a, there's a key difference between the suffragists and the suffragettes, and that is sort of the militant side. And um, Millicent was actually quite anti any... Well, not initially. The, 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 the WSPU, uh, the Pankhurst Organisation, Women's Social and Political Union, started in 1903. They started off um, not being militant in the sense of initiating violence, but rather 
going to public meetings and beginning to behave like many of the young men who went to public meetings. I mean, let's not forget that public meetings uh, for the franchise were very rowdy affairs. There was heckling, um, uh, there were interruptions from the young men there. What happened when the members of the WSPU began to ask questions to in, uh, then to interrupt, then to heckle, uh, was the sense of outrage on the part of the young men that women should be, ladies should be doing this. So uh, from that it escalated into they, they got chucked out of the meetings. How very unseemly of them. Uh, that's right. Manhandled, uh, then arrested. Uh, uh, obstructive behaviour. Something that didn't happen to men who broke up election meetings uh-huh. by and large. But initially the members of the NUWSS were sympathetic to the violence being meted out to the women and um, Millicent herself hosted a banquet to uh, greet the first women who had been imprisoned when they came out of prison. But then within the WSPU, the movement escalated into initiating violence, Um, stone-throwing, arson, uh, not just pillar boxes, where everybody's mail went up in flames, but houses. Mm. And for some of the campaigners, they were no respecter of persons. So if there was collateral damage to people, tough. And that's when the separation between the NUWSS, the constitutionalists, and uh, the militants uh, really sharpens. Can I ask you what Mm. you make of the idea that they may be pardoned, the suffragettes. I think they'd be absolutely outraged. Yeah, that's what we agree. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, they, they didn't do it to be pardoned. Yeah. They did it to make a point. It seems so patronising, doesn't oh, it? Utterly and completely. And, and, and I don't know where that daft idea came from. Do you? Um, only that it may be used as a kind of gesture to women in a, you know... Well, yeah, yeah, most women I know would be outraged. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah, not it's, a gesture. It's basically they wish. a pat on the head, isn't it? I, I, absolutely. Oh, you want to do what you are to do. Yeah. Yeah. Well done. Oh, it's a sock, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah, and, and actually most of the NUWSS would have been outraged because they got very fed up in their public demonstrations, which were peaceful, well-organised, um, big mass processions... Uh, the suffrage caravans, the uh, the pilgrimage, from which the you know the Jarrow marchers copied the idea in in um, 1913, their gatherings got broken up by toughs deciding that using the suffragettes as uh, the weapon, yeah. uh, tarring them all with the same brush. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was just too easy for the opposition uh, to blame them. So the members of the NUWSS who had made their choices and who also were very committed to um, the organisational structures of the NUWSS, which uh, worked incredibly hard at being 
representative, whereas the WSPU increasingly became a dictatorship run from the top, mm -hmm. and a number of women broke with it for precisely that reason. Uh, they felt that their values in the end were different. And what made Millicent so key in getting us, or getting some of us, the vote? As she worked hard, um, she was a very good speaker and writer. Her early training being Henry's eyes. Of course. Uh, sometimes Henry's voice. She had spoken from his election platforms along with him. Uh, he stood her in good stead. I, she worked tirelessly with pen and with voice. She travelled extraordinarily. I, she went by train and bus. She never had a telephone. She wrote all her letters herself. And she hung on to her temper amazingly, sometimes in the face of the most extraordinary provocation. Do you know who this sounds like? Particularly with the um, with the idea of sort of substituting him for your husband, it sounds like Eleanor Roosevelt, who also kind of had to thrown into the political domain because of the sort of frailties of her husband, and never, I don't think, lost her temper once. In no, no, all of that no, time. indeed, indeed, yeah. I mean, those who were closest to her um it could sometimes see when the effort of control yeah. was was see vibrate yeah. slightly yeah. Yeah. Yes. certainly never yes. rose to it publicly yes is, yes yeah. yes and and once i think remarked that um her job was to maintain her temper and provide ladders down which people could climb when they had changed their mind and that's uh, a great line help them save their faces <laughs> Um, her legacy is not just what she's left us in terms of sort of our political empowerment. No, no. I, I, I mean, it, it is. It's yeah. a masterclass in peaceful campaigning yeah. uh, under the most difficult circumstances. But she was also heavily involved in in the creation of this college yeah. in education for women. In, in for education for women. Yes, um, she and her daughter Philippa. Um, they are both. They are both celebrated in this college. Um, Millicent uh, in her drawing room um, the first meetings of the small group who wanted to organise lectures for ladies in Cambridge mm. took place she was heavily involved when it morphed into a limited not-for-profit company she was elected to the first council in 1881 and served on the council until 1909 Philippa, um, who was a gifted mathematician, came here to Newnham in 1887 and in 1890 was the first woman to be placed above uh, all the men in the mathematics tripod. What's that called? Chief, is that called Chief Wrangler? Is that um, see, uh, she was above the senior Wrangler. The se yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah. You know, there were many men who reckoned that women could never do that. That, that, that you know, mathematics they might they might do other things, but mathematics was 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 a closed book. Um, so that was celebrated properly by everybody including a Millicent's father who was actually in the gallery of the Senate House 
when the result was read out and he practically burst with pride at, at, at that point. And then uh, having taught mathematics here for a spell, Philippa uh, was part of the group creating an educational system in South Africa after the Boer War and then came back, was the senior woman in the LCC uh, for a longish spell, a very serious and effective educational administrator. And Millicent continued to take an interest uh, in the battle to try to get the university to take more, give the women more of a place from 1918 through to 24. Millicent was deploying all her experience to try to uh, um, advise the women then. Um, Though Cambridge, of course, was the last university in the UK to admit women to full membership. Didn't do it till... 1948. Just is ridiculous. It, oh, the, the the figures are absolutely astound me. First <laughs> male colleges to take women didn't happen until 1970, and the last male college to go all to admit women, so to go for both sexes to be educated, was Magdalen after 1984. Didn't you say a load of the more black old Yes, they did. They did, and the university retained the power to limit the number of women in the university overall until 1981. Oh my. I mean, we uh, when Newnham hit its hundredth birthday in 1971, we asked them whether, as we asked the council of the senate, whether as a gesture they might like quietly to lose that power, uh, and got a polite negative. And they said, "We'll wait another ten years. You know, we don't want women getting ideas about this." Well, it, it was pressure from men's colleges wanting to go mixed that yeah. <laughs> nothing to do with the women. <laughs> ask you, Jill, how do you think history is going to judge the current period that we're living through in terms of women's position in society? Very <laughs> difficult because it's continuing to yeah. evolve at a, at a rate of knots. It's going to take ages to get reasonable representation of women in the higher political echelons in spite of two women prime ministers. They're not ones for putting the ladder down, though, like Millicent no, were, were they? absolutely not. I, I think, from that point of view, Theresa May probably has a better record than Margaret Thatcher, who notoriously, having climbed the ladder, kicked it away. Yeah. <laughs> and set fire to it. <laughs> it's a slow business, it's going to be very interesting to see whether the publishing of gender pay gaps really makes a difference to practice, because that's happening for the first time now, mm-hmm. throwing up all sorts of interesting patterns, I and mean, one, of, one of which is you then start looking at how many women are employed where in an organisation. What will happen with the, with the momentum of Me Too? I don't know. Does the United States have any models? I suspect not, because in, in, in many ways women are still being judged, as they were in Millicent's day, by their appearance rather than the content of their 
argument went absolutely crystallised in that exchange between Hillary Clinton and Mary Beard in The Guardian in yeah. December. Uh, did you see I that? I did see that. Um, and there Hillary turns up beautifully made up. Mary turns up in her usual fashion. She turns up as Mary Beard. If she which turns up as Mary Beard. And, um, and, and, uh, but they agree. Uh, and Mary says... Um, if I wore makeup, I'd never hear the end of it. So we are both equally trapped. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, I, I saw some stuff at the weekend about Mary Beard's civilizations that contained comments on what she looked like, which befuddled me. Uh, you know, what? It's got nothing to does do. That matter? No. With anything. Nobody's <clears throat> nobody's commenting on what Simon Sharma looks no. like. No. Oh, they no. Could probably. Yeah, I'm going to tell him to lose that jacket. Simon, if you're listening, Um, I read an interesting thing recently that was saying that when women and men in the public eye are spoken about, it's very often it's the rule that you kind of use the men's surname, but women get referred to by their first name, and it's infantilizing, isn't it? Yeah, still, it's like you're not a grown up, you're not an adult. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, giving the vote to women over 30 in 1918 is saying you'll mature more slowly. And also women over 30 and also you had to own property or be married to someone. Be married to a property owner or be a graduate. I have to go back to the Act and check whether you could be a graduate under 30 and qualify. And I haven't done that, I'm ashamed to say. Um, Because... You were big on the other facts, though, so that was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask what the if you are aware of what the current progress for Millicent Fawcett's statue, which is a project that? Um, well, the last I heard, um, but this is a couple of weeks out of date, was that the uh, the mayor of London's office was asking whether there was a particular anniversary in April. Uh, to which its unveiling could be linked, from which we deduce that that it's not going to be ready before April. Um, Now, where the problems are is less clear. Um, The maquette exists, and you've probably seen photographs of it, the the tiny miniature. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, Yeah. Whether the casting of the the full-size statue is taking longer than initially expected, because that's a tricky business. But also there is this plan to um, incise in the plinth 40 images taken from photographs, and nobody seems very clear as to how this is going to be done and how they're going to be turned into a material that's not going to deteriorate. I mean, there's some criticism about the use of photographs altogether uh, and whether that is another source of difficulty, I don't know. So that's where we are. I mean, myself, I've been wondering whether they ought not to um, stop fretting about April because nobody's been able to think of an anniversary and go for the 2nd of July, which is the 90th anniversary of the royal assent to the legislation of 1928, which gave women the vote on the same terms as men. Right. That would seem like a great anniversary. Well, it is. There is going to be, I gather, another huge parliamentary party, but whether it is thought too late in the political year, I don't know. I suppose it's just before they go off for... 
Holidays. Yeah, the holidays. <laughs> For like three months um, or whatever it is. But, uh, you know, it is very difficult between February and um, the beginning of July to see an obvious anniversary. Uh, so that's all I know. Well, it's happening, which is which was quite the achievement, wasn't it? I mean, it's see, ridiculous that people actually have to run campaigns yes, to get statues. Yes, yes. Of, I mean, it was like Caroline Criado Perez yeah. who, who ran the great um, yeah campaign. She's yes. doing sterling work for women, isn't she? Yeah. Got Jane Austen on the fibers, tennis. Yeah. Sorry, tennis. Yeah. And uh, and now a statue, but it's still. Like, you were saying about the blue plaque that has been one for Henry for so long. <laughs> It's just like, well, you know, she did stuff for birds, so who's bothered? Yeah. You know, just like, where bothered? <laughs> interestingly, I mean, there's a memorial to Henry in um, St George's Chapel in Westminster Abbey, um, which uh, was put there at the end of the 1880s, I think. But in 1932, only uh, three years after Millicent's death, Roundel's, to make it look slightly odd, but Roundel's celebrating Millicent were added to that memorial. So there is actually in Westminster Abbey a memorial to both of them. Oh, that's interesting. Mm. But it has still taken another 80 odd years to try and get something of her own. Well, there is a blue plaque on the house in Gower Street. Uh, where she joined her sister Agnes after Henry's death and Philippa and Philippa was then at school in London and was going round the corner to UCL for extra mathematics coaching um, so there is a blue plaque there which has been there since the 1950s and it is I'm pleased to say still there Good. Um, and of course there's Newnham I suppose well indeed there is Newnham and um, after some negotiation we succeeded in getting the city to recognise that involvement on the city's blue plaque oh that's good so when did that happen? (laughs) Uh, December to January and the blue (laughs) this year the college paid I should say for the blue plaque um, which was one of the ways of ensuring they got the wording they wanted and it was un- it hasn't gone up on the house yet, but it was unveiled. Um, we had a grand party in the Guildhall in Cambridge on the sixth of February, and it was unveiled then. Well, congratulations! Yeah, I, I was say given how slowly things move um, around here, yeah. that's actually quite fast <laughs> moving to get that. Yeah. yeah, I'm surprised we've all lived to see it. To be honest. <laughs> International Women's Day seems exactly the right time to big up some charities doing excellent work for women but desperately in need of your cash, should you have some to spare. Refuge, Rape Crisis, the Abortion Support Network, the Homeless Period, Women in Sport, the Samaritans and, you know, just putting a few extra items, including sanitary hygiene products, in your local food bank. Up the women! Until the next time, stay frosty. Standard issue for all women.